Welcome to What Didn't Kill You, where we explore personal and professional stories of adaptation in the face of adversity and the causal relationship between pain and growth. I'm your host, Michael Silverman. I'm an entrepreneur, investor, and student of life that is fascinated by how professional missteps, adverse life circumstances, and pain are harnessed by people and organizations to inform future triumphs and bring deeper meaning to their life and work. Join me as we explore the mindsets, philosophies, and narratives of those who embody Friedrich Nietzsche's timeless aphorism, what does not kill me makes me stronger. All right, Carrie and Howie, thank you for joining me on this episode of What Didn't Kill You. Really appreciate it. We've had a number of conversations in the past that uh, have always been so fascinating. Love the way you guys see the world and would love to start with you guys talking about your organization's Atlas and and Alpha Bridge uh, Ventures and how you guys came to be partners in it. Two of the three uh, partners in in Alpha Bridge and Carrie, I think you're the founder of of Atlas, and maybe you can start and just explain sort of how both those two organizations uh, came to be and how you came to found or co-found them. I'm a co-founder also of Atlas, so the three partners in Alpha Bridge are also the three partners in Atlas. Um, we all work together on both sides. And I actually love to have Howie start the story because it really started before me. And so um, let's do it in chronological order, if that's all right with you. Awesome. That'd be great. Howie would, would, love, to, would love to hear it. Uh, great to be here, Michael. The genesis of this story, I guess, is, was when I was sort of identify. I've always identified as an entrepreneur. I was in the music industry for a long time. I was an artist. I ran a music management and licensing company, somehow found my way into venture through a very circuitous, unconventional path, and then ended up running my own venture fund in 2015. Wasn't very aware at the time of how sort of the the challenges that I was enduring as an entrepreneur, how it was affecting me personally, from my physical health all the way down to mental and emotional health. I just kept going and going and going. And the way that I describe it is there was a point, a moment in time where I just felt like uh, my engine crashed out, just burnt out. Um, it was in the midst of uh, raising my first fund. And um, I was, I also just try to go above and beyond for all the founders, you know, I was trying to prove myself. So all the companies that I was investing in, I was trying to help the founders as, as much as I could. I was actually flying to um, Europe to help a company with some of their distribution uh, in the midst of raising my fund, in the midst of dealing with imposter syndrome and having you know periods of time where I felt like I had no idea what I was doing. And then now people are giving me money to put to work and I felt like a fraud. And I was just burning the candle at all ends. And it really hit me pretty hard and was dealing with anxiety and had a panic attack and really couldn't talk to anyone about what I was what I was struggling with because as a founder or as an entrepreneur you you deal so much with putting off a you know making it seem like everything is great that you have everything under control and that you are crushing it crush it culture so you're very prideful as a founder and you're very shameful at the same time and that combination creates an isolating environment so you don't want to can't really you know couldn't talk to my family couldn't talk to my friends about it couldn't talk to any colleagues about it and would try to go off and find resources to help help me. And the resources were inaccessible. They were expensive and they were not custom tailored to, to my specific needs. So I was sort of stuck and it was really a challenge to navigate the sort of coaching waters and to figure out you know what specific help I needed. Honestly, started talking to my founders about it, just having very open and honest, you know, candid conversations with my founders about you know what they were going through what I was going through and there was just such like this magical alignment that we were both going through the same thing and we're like wait a minute how come no one else is like why aren't we talking about this like every we're all we're all struggling and enduring and and trying to do the impossible and the sacrifices that we're making personally it's really difficult to sort of explain and and to understand like like how much we're giving up and how much that's impacting us. So just having those conversations actually helped me. <laughs> and then I started realizing that it actually helped them 
just having the conversation was really important. And so it was almost acted as a support system, sort of like a, an anecdotal support system, so to speak. Like none of us are trained as psychologists, but just having a sounding board and talking about those issues really, really made an impact. So I think that's really where it started to identify the problem and to really, in speaking with, with the founders that I was investing in, really understand that this was something that every founder struggles with to varying degrees. And there was no VC firms that were having these conversations, A, to identify the problem and then bringing a meaningful solution to the table to actually um, you know, help the founders, meet the founders where they are in, in their struggles today. And then also like think about what can we do to sort of equip them with the necessary skill sets and the tools to get out ahead of any potential future challenges and problems, whether that be co-founder conflict, whether it be burnout, feelings of burnout, imposter syndrome, personal issues that they're dealing with as you go through this founder journey, but then also like leadership development, because as we all know, like, or maybe we didn't know this, which was really surprising to me, but it's the people behind the companies that make the company great. So if the people that, that are running the companies aren't happy and healthy, and if they don't have the proper leadership tool belt to run the company, the company will fail. And there's actually data to support that. Um, that we found. So it, it validated a lot of our assumptions when we went out to raise AlphaBridge, that we wanted to do something that was much more humanistic and, and people-focused. We just had that epiphany, Jake and I, by virtue of going through it ourselves, talking to our founders, and then feeling like the time was was right to really support the people that are creating the most imp- impactful change in the world. And then that's sort of when we brought Carrie in to bring her ideas to the table to think about how we construct a program around that. That's really cool. One of the comments you've got, I think on your website is you can't take a company further than you've taken yourself. I think that's, that's a really cool way of looking at it because it's you know, building companies is this constant effort of pushing yourself, trying to solve hard problems. And you know, you're in this high risk, high reward environment. So thinking about the psychological aspect of that seems like such a such an obvious, uh, uh, obvious focus point, but really it doesn't, doesn't always seem to flesh out that way, certainly in the organizational community. How did you and Carrie meet and connect around these issues? And, and Carrie, how did you find this, this concept? How did it strike you initially when, when you guys connected? It was like one of those stars aligned moments. Timing is everything. Carrie was graduating or getting finishing up grad school. I remember her exact dissertation, but it was had an emphasis on well she she's a psychologist and a concentration in like organizational behavior and development. Is that right, Carrie? Yeah. Close to that. And so uh, we, I met her and it was she was like, I'm gonna move back to Portland and open up a private practice and this is my emphasis on my work. And I was like, wow, that's really interesting and crazy timing because we're just spinning up this fund and have an emphasis in, in the same exact area. You know, what can I do to convince you to not go to Portland and to come work with us instead? Um, you can make a much bigger impact and it'll be what, it'll be way more exciting, I can tell you that, if, if nothing more than having a, just a private practice with 10 clients in Portland um, and give her like the whole pitch of like, you know, you, you could save the world sort of thing. And I guess it worked. But I don't really know what I said to convince her. <laughs> I said no a lot of times before I got captured. <laughs> yeah. And, and, and for me, like, no is just the beginning of a conversation. It's a great example of you've got to be out there talking about your ideas, sharing, sharing your experiences. And I think that's, you know, it seems like, Howie, that's, that's kind of how you came to this concept and certainly how, how you guys found each other. Carrie, what was your impression of Howie's thesis uh, initially when you guys connected? So what I'll say is that my my dissertation was on the organizational factors of self-care. So how how does a holistic look of human well-being fit into a productive and highly efficient workplace? And so I was was studying those intersections um, throughout my doctoral work and before. Um, That's exactly what I went to grad school to study. So when Howie started talking about not only kind of being inside of a venture firm and having this access to companies and having influence over the companies in a way, but also the intersection of where leaders' mental health and well-being impact the organizational factors of their of the organization, right? Um, I thought this is basically a dream job for me. 
In fact, I remember I was meeting with someone, I don't know who it was. We had to have meetings about what we want to do when we graduate while I was in graduate school. I said, what I really want to do is be embedded in an organization where I'm meeting consistently with leaders and helping them to shape the way that companies function. And I was basically told, like, that doesn't really exist. Um, It's not really a job for a psychologist. So, you know, I kind of set my sights on private practice and thought, you know, I'd always do some consulting on the side and maybe kind of like piece it together that way. So my initial, the initial thing that struck me was, wow, I have both the impact and kind of a perfect niche for my skill sets here. Um, And the thing that really turned me around to say yes to Howie and Jake is that both of them were so heartfelt in the way that they came to this thesis. Uh, That felt really genuine. Both Jake and Howie have their own stories with mental health and also just a stack of stories from founders that they've interacted with. So I was really compelled, especially once I started getting in and doing some research and interviewing founders around just the, the level of pain that's being experienced and not talked about. And to a certain extent, I mean, it's, you know, the entrepreneurial road is oftentimes by necessity a painful one. Were you drawn to this notion of helping people deal with pain, helping people deal with trauma going into grad school and, and throughout your studies? And how does that, how, how do you feel that kind of interacts with studying organizations? Well, that's a really complex question. Let me see if I can break it apart. So I was originally drawn to helping people solve pain, but maybe not in the way that you would anticipate. Where I started my journey in this was working at the YWCA with women who were leaving domestic violence situations and entering back into the workforce, some of them after 30 or 40 years. And what I noted is that people who have experiences of trauma or hard life experiences or pain who then go to find something that is essentially their life purpose. And we know that there are two kind of major buckets for a well-functioning human life, which is really to love well and to work well. Um, That was a quote, I think, by Freud. (laughs) But essentially what happened over and over and over again when I was working with these women is that they brought their trauma with them to work, and then their trauma was recreated by the structure of our working environments. And they continue to stay stuck and not to ever kind of reach that life's purpose that they were seeking through their work. And I thought, this just can't be it, right? Like, we can't just go to work and have life sucked from us and then go home and have nothing to give to the people we love. Like, this isn't a way to live. So that's where I started my journey. And so I became actually pretty obsessed with the way that pain gets created and amplified at work. And how it, it actually, some, some of us go to work to try to solve that or to come into our purpose or to come into who we are as people. And yet it does the opposite to us. And that's actually so important for entrepreneurs because not only is it a job that we go to, but it's also our, our whole life, right? Our identities often are wrapped up in our companies or our projects. I guess that, that kind of answers the, the second part too, though, which is that pain and purpose connection. Which if you've got if you've got people as part of an organization that have their their purpose attached to to what they're doing every day, they're certainly gonna have be be much happier and, and probably work harder. But that goes to this this connection between pain and purpose. And it seems like quite often people can use pain to to find purpose and and crystallize that and you know one of my favorite books on that is, is Victor Frankl's Man's Search for Meaning being able to use that but it doesn't always necessarily happen that way what's the difference between pain that can really impair a person and impair performance and and mental health and pain that can liberate or empower or or crystallize someone's purpose We sometimes like to say that a brighter light casts a longer shadow. So this sort of predisposition that entrepreneurs often have to pain, and I'll I'll give you an example from my own life here in a second, often also has a kind of a, a shadowy underbelly. So we often talk about how do we help entrepreneurs focus that pain, right? And and create it into a superpower rather than having it be something that becomes self-destructive. I had an, an okay childhood, but I had a lot of pain and it, it led me to organize my entire life around achievement and 
being in control and having some sort of power over my environment to try to control the lack of control I had (laughs) right in my childhood. And I had a professor in college tell me that I would be best if I stopped meditating and waited to go to therapy until I completed graduate school. He said that your pain from your childhood is going to drive you to be extraordinarily successful, incredibly selfless. It's going to lead you to want to be the top of everything and to know everything about everything. (laughs) And he said, and that's going to serve you really well in school. And so you have a choice, right? You can heal yourself and maybe blunt the edge of that sword a little bit or to lean in fully to your predisposition and kind of ride its coattails into early success and then start your healing journey journey. However, I do not agree with him in that I was in serious pain and like the points well taken that sometimes that sort of painful childhood or predisposition. And I will say it's actually way more than sometimes it's the majority of entrepreneurs I talk to have something that got set up early in their lives that drives them to do something incredibly hard. You know, if you're like after money or after prestige, like you don't start a company, like that's the hardest way to get there. (laughs) You know, there's so many easier paths. So you have to be driven by something more than that. Um, And I think you're exactly right that that pain can turn into a kind of pure dedication to purpose, but it can also quickly flip into something that's that's dark and self-destructive. It's remarkable how what your professor was saying seems to really mirror a lot of the maybe more toxic aspects of the sort of cult of entrepreneurship or or the you know the cult of overwork or this notion of you know as long as you as long as you can just get it done you'll suffer the the personal consequences you'll figure that out later right whether that's you know broken personal life or or mental health or physical health or anything else yeah i think sold faulty goods, right? I I hear entrepreneurs say all the time when I ask them, you know, are you sleeping? Are you eating? Are you exercising? How many hours are you working? And they're like, well, I love what I do. So it doesn't feel like work. Okay. (laughs) Yes. And there's still a toll that that takes. And we experience this all the time on our team. You know, we're, we're fully in the crush it culture, cult of entrepreneurship ourselves and constantly trying to pull our minds out of it to take a look at you know, what we're doing to our bodies, our minds, our relationships as we're building our projects as well. So how do you, how do you get that perspective for, for yourself, your team, but also the folks that you're working with? And maybe you could use that to segue a little bit more into what, what Atlas does and, and how that interacts with AlphaBridge. Sure. Howie, do you want to talk about what we do as a team to pull ourselves out of, out of our trance? <laughs> yeah. Well, I think, we're, I think it's a work in progress. I think we're becoming aware of and we're deep diving into each partner's like individual journeys and how we work and our strengths and our weaknesses. And I think understanding that, like just having having the understanding of how how different each of us are and how that could be a really amazing thing in terms of us complementing each other's, you know, skill sets. But it could also be detrimental if you just don't know where the other person's coming from, if you're not feel like you're not being heard, if you know you're just you know so 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 bringing light, I guess, to each of each of our individual who we are and how we work has been really instrumental in terms of saying, oh, okay, so Carrie's saying this because I have some context as to why she's saying this. I I understand versus she's not just saying it to a just because like, it's just not creating just like, just friction for no reason. It's like, she's saying this because I like actually fundamentally understand her belief system and like who she is as a person. So I think that's like, that's been really profound for me, working with a partnership to sort of understand your partners from like a fundamental in a fundamental sort of existential way. Versus just these are my work partners and like let's let's build a company together. So I think I, I really believe that's just an, a really important path and a strategy um, for for every partnership to sort of take the time to understand, you know, have that sort of not only self awareness but awareness of of who you're working with, why you're doing what you're doing. Of course, like making sure you're aligned with values and ethics, um, but having those conversations early on and having them the ongoing conversations as you build the partnership, I think is, is really important. 
So I'll take us back just a, just a minute so that we can understand the way that the fund and Atlas are related. So Howie and Jake founded Alpha Bridge Ventures together. For them, it's, it's both their second funds. They came together around the thesis of founder well-being. And at that point, I was hired to come in and understand what it might look like to build out a structure or a solution to support founders as they're building their companies in their personal lives and on the people side of their business. Coming from the world of therapy, I knew absolutely nothing about entrepreneurship and nothing about founders or the needs of startups at all. So I started the way I start everything with a qualitative research study. Talk to several founders about their experiences, specifically around burnout, so we could understand a little bit more around what does a typical burnout story look like, and then how are entrepreneurs naturally reaching out for support and healing themselves. And it quickly became apparent to me that what a solution might look like is actually something beyond offering therapy or coaching to the founders in the portfolio. It needed to be a solution based in holistic well being. And that's when. I started building out what became the foundations of Atlas. So alongside this sort of holistic view, we also learned that entrepreneurs need a confidential space to talk. That being an entrepreneur actually kind of looks like living in a fishbowl. I know we all know this pretty intimately, but anyone could be your potential next customer or your next employee or your next investor. So there is nowhere private and there's no one who is a totally confidential person who's just there for you. It just doesn't exist. And as companies grow, that that sphere of trusted people gets smaller and smaller. And the sort of niche experience of being a founder gets more and more specialized. And so we decided that we needed to spin out whatever solution we built as a separate company so that there would be this, this confidential community of founders that wasn't housed within a venture fund. So that's when Atlas and Alpha Bridge became two separate entities. Of course, they're intimately connected because one grew out of the other, but legally and for all practical sake, they're two separate things. And at that point, Atlas became a holistic center for entrepreneurs to understand not only where, they're, where they are in their leadership journey, but also um, we would issue an interview and assessment to help entrepreneurs understand how they're doing in 12 different domains of living, including mental and emotional health, physical well-being which is sleep, exercise, and nutrition. Um, we're also looking at chronic health and stress-related disorders, which are super, super common in entrepreneurs, like digestive issues. We're also looking at their relationships outside of work, as well as what's going on in their company. And that's the first step for anyone coming into Atlas. And is the, the confidential space, is that led by you, Carrie, or fellow entrepreneurs? How does that how does that look and, and how do you create that environment where people are willing to share in an open and candid way where, you know, in, in a way that they wouldn't in the outside world? Yeah, well, instead of answering your question with words, I hope that you will come and experience it. So every month we host three confidential spaces that are totally free and open to the community. One for investors, one for founders, and one for startup leaders. And what we do is each of those spaces is hosted by a coach or a therapist. And we have a list of ground rules and rules of play that help us understand what it looks like to set up an environment where folks can be vulnerable and honest about the things that they don't get airtime for in other parts of their lives. And honestly, the thing that creates this sort of space better than anything else is an entrepreneur taking a risk. So the minute an investor or a leader or a founder says something that someone else was thinking but has never said out loud, then we're off to the races. The space has been created. So the answer is it's facilitated by us. We hold space. Um, it's a community of coaches and therapists, but the space is really created by the people in it. Is there a separation then from, you know, if, if Howie is sitting on the board of a company, would he, would he then not be necessarily in those conversations or do you guys join those and try to have that be sort of the, the way that you're engaging all the time? How do you want to take that one? You mean from, because I'm a, a fund manager or because I work with the companies in a different way? Is, so yeah. Is so my question is, you know, if okay. let's say there's a portfolio company and you, it's, it's one that you brought into the portfolio and you've kind of championed, will you also 
be engaging in, in sort of this this confidential holistic approach with them or is it something that happens separately from from you and kind of the the business of the fund if you will yeah the the the, the latter of what you said i'm not allowed Carrie won't let me engage with them i engage with them as a human being and i ask them how they're doing um but jake and i are more how can we help your company grow and Carrie's more how can we help you grow and there's actually the, the legal structure that Carrie just mentioned um, in terms of Atlas being its own separate company. Th- there are reasons for that from a legal standpoint, but it's also f- from an optics standpoint. Um, I think that was really important too, to, so that the founders know that anything that happens in Atlas stays in Atlas and won't get back to myself and Jake as fund managers. And I think that really helped to create... And there's, there's actually a confidentiality agreement in place between Atlas and the fund. That helped to create that environment of privacy, confidentiality, and vulnerability, which is really what I think we're talking about is creating a vulnerable space where founders can talk about the real, you know, substantive challenges that they're going through personally, not have it be performative because there's a there's a fund manager in the room and they have to talk about how everything's going great because these are the people that gave me money. We're trying to we're trying to break down those barriers in general. And, and I think having the structure that we have with Atlas and, and the fund being separate, I think is a great first step. It's always easier to say the hard thing the second time. So if we create a confidential space where folks can share freely, then our hope is that they'll be able to take that information back to their investors and have more candid and honest conversations. And that's why we also dedicate ourselves to work not just with founders, but also with investors. So once a month, we also have a group of investors who come together and call ourselves the VCs who care. And it's a group of people who are interested and committed to having different conversations with their founders and supporting founders in different ways. Because we think that, you know, that stigma that we see in in mental health more broadly, but probably even more intensely in the cohort of investors and founders, the only way to break that down is to be having honest and vulnerable conversations from both sides. Yeah. And, and like, let's be totally honest, running a startup, starting a company, doing the impossible. I mean, it's, it's the hardest, one of the hardest things in the world, everything goes wrong. And so if a founders tell their investors and, you know, we invest in pre-series A, but this is probably true across any you know stage of the company, they're saying everything's great and I'm great. It's just not true. And so it's like, let's, let's just, okay whatever, like what's, how are you really? And what's really, you know, like, and like what, tell me like all the bad things, hair on fire problems that you have going on in the company. Cause I know it's not going great. It's just like the nature of the business that you're in <laughs> is that like, it's a dumpster fire. Tell me where the fire is so I can help put it out personally and professionally. And Michael, pre COVID, we used to have dinners. We don't do that right now, but we used to host dinners where Howie and Jake and I are around the table with a number of our portfolio companies or other founders. And we start actually with an activity called, how are you really? (laughs) And it's anybody in the group can ask another person, how are you? And then the group continues to ask, how are you really? Until we feel like we've really gotten to the core of the issue. And sometimes how, how long for 10 people, it might take us three and a half hours to get through the table. Sometimes the whole dinner. Yeah. Sometimes all night (laughs) we're, we're just telling each other how we really are. And um, those are the sorts of conversations we want to have more and more of. Those have been really effective. That's been a great platform or format to have fund managers, Jake, myself, Carrie, around a table with founders where we can all be vulnerable. I think that that was sort of profound in terms of bridging this gap between to make the founder VC relationship more humanistic, less transactional. It's like, I'll tell you what I'm going through right now, because guess what? I'm a, I'm a fund manager, but I'm not a fund manager that has 20 years of track record that has showed, you know, five X returns. So money doesn't grow on trees for me either. I got to go out. I got to pound the pavement. I got to, you know, hustle. I got to fundraise. I got to go on the, you know, I got to travel three weeks out of every month to ask people for money and mostly get rejected. It's like, I'm going through the same thing you are. You know, a lot of founders don't really understand that, you know, the, the people who are investing in them are our paths are very similar. We're building a company just like you are, and we're trying to prove ourselves. And 
we deal with a lot of the same, you know, psychological issues that you're dealing with. Like people gave us money and we have to deliver a return. Just, you know, same thing with you guys. So it really helped that format to just sort of, let's all have a conversations where we're all human and we're on the same team here. And, and we're all, we're pretty close to like going through the same issues. Um, let's get that all out on the surface and, and talk about it. Remarkable how uh, the parallels to what you guys are doing and uh, a friend of mine who I've had on the podcast is doing in the world of grief. My friend Carla created a, an organization called The Dinner Party, but effectively they do something very similar where uh, mostly millennials dealing with, uh, with grief are having those same types of conversations. And so you've got this underlying essentially life experience where similarly, it's, there's a stigma around talking about the, the hardships. There's this uh, concept of you know, telling people you're fine or requiring this, this image of strength. It seems like you really have to do some work to break down those walls. Like, uh, you know, as you said, you, you have to ask, how are you really a few different times to really get there? How do you find that experience when somebody kind of comes into the fold initially? And, and how do you continue to train yourself to break down those walls because i would imagine howie you know there's there's still some voice in your head saying ah oh, you know i'm i'm the fund manager there's maybe a pause to saying do i really want to share this vulnerability with with one of my entrepreneurs and what you know what does that mean or or vice versa for the entrepreneur to you how do you continue to reinforce that it's actually it'd be the the analogy well it would be like me being vulnerable to my LPs is equivalent to my entrepreneurs being vulnerable to me. It's really easy for me to be vulnerable to my entrepreneurs because I'm in a position of power. So that's what actually makes or, you know, the semblance of power. But like I'm giving, I'm the one giving them money. And so when I can open up to them, it's more of like, wow, I've never heard this from a, from an, from an investor before. Like, like we're having a actual like emotional conversation that's rare. Number one, number two, it almost, almost sort of acts as comes off as like, I'm giving them permission. If I'm going to be vulnerable and open, like I'm giving you permission to do it. So that, that dynamic between myself and the entrepreneur, I realize that I, I can control that, that interaction and I can, I can control if it's, you know, transactional and keep it at a very like um, business level. Like what can I do to help your company? Or I can be like, you know, Hey, you know, how are you? What are you struggling with? So on and so forth. And and that again, that was sort of the genesis of I started having more and more of those conversations and they would open up to me and I became a great sounding board for them. But then I couldn't do anything like functionally to help them. And so that that was how I was like, okay, we need to build a program around this and actually you know institutionalize a solution, not just have me sitting here asking questions and then responding, even though that was helpful. And it was helpful for me too to understand. That's exactly the point is that those of us who have loud voices in a community have the ability to create culture change. And like as humans, we just want to do whatever is cool and whatever is allowed, whatever is pro-social. So if we as people who have loud voices or have the money, say the investors, start changing the conversation, then then resilience and emotional vulnerability and ability to navigate yourself and share with others becomes what's cool, what's strong, what's what makes you a good leader rather than crushing it and being cool headed and never having a problem. So I think it, we actually see the change happening relatively quickly at these dinners. As soon as we start to talk about what's going on with us, the entrepreneurs start to understand, Oh, in this space, what is admired, what makes a good leader, what makes a resilient human being is someone who shares and is honest and is in touch with themselves. Yeah. We really set the precedent. And I think we, we have, we're in a unique position. And this is one of the things that we talk about in our VC forums and our events. Like we don't realize how much of an influence we actually have and that we can have, not just on the company, but like, yes, obviously we have, we have influence on the company. And if you're on the board, you have even more influence, but that is like the, that is in service of just one node of like making money. It's like, let's get away from just maximizing profits and getting markups so that you can, you know, justify that for your LPs. And let's really go, let's talk about this on a humanistic level. And like the money will come, that money will, will be secondary to making sure that the founders are happy and healthy and have everything that they need and are operating at their fullest potential. We'll all make money because we're investing in for-profit companies. Okay. And like, hopefully we're investing in for-profit companies that are, you know, materially changing the world for the better. 
but let's break it down and like help you know talk to the these the, the founders on 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 yeah on like a on a human level and help them get what they need so that they can, they can then operate these companies and not have to i mean we we Carrie and I talk about this you know I said to myself you know I want to invest in people that are willing to win at all costs that's what I used to say when I first started my fund you know grit determination perseverance these are the qualities that I care about founders who can operate in an environment of scarcity and and overcome you know any existential threat of the company those are things I care about. I don't care where you went to school. I don't care about, you know, those sort of factors that, you know, you know, for me, it's like, are you a thunder lizard as Mike Maples would say, you know, but then I started thinking if you were winning, if one of those cost inputs was like sacrificing your own health and your relationships with your families and the relationship with your kids and your partners, and you have like, you're not eating right and you're not sleeping right. And you're like, struggling as a human being that I don't feel great about that. I don't want you to win if that's the things that you're going to give up. And that was sort of like when the light bulb went off of like, I want you to win at all costs, but that cost can't be at the expense of your own health. And we can, we can do something about that. We can change, we can help you win and um, in a better way, in a more sustainable way. And in a way that's, that's going to make you a, you know, a better, a better person and, and not, not inhibit you in any way, shape or form. So that was like a big moment for us. I think you touched, you both touched on something I think is really powerful and, and it has been a, a powerful realization for me in my own life, which is this connection between resilience and the willingness to be vulnerable and emotional vulnerability. Cause I think that there is a widely held belief that's maybe changing, but you know, this, this equation of emotion or open displays of emotion or talking about emotion uh, as weakness, as opposed to actually being a sign of, of resilience and perseverance. And it seems like there's a huge part of your work that's really just shining light on what different people are going through and, and validating that as opposed to saying you have to, you have to hide it. Do you see an opportunity for sort of the investment community in general to orient more towards that? And uh, how has that been received from from other other investors, um, you know, at conferences or, or that you're talking to? Yeah, you ask these just doozies of questions. Sorry, a little complicated, <laughs> so I suppose. <laughs> yeah, I think the first the first thing is that we do make an assumption that when people share something and they don't feel alone, that they're more resilient. And it's, I mean, it's an assumption based on research and clinical practice and also just practical experience that humans are social animals and we're meant to work in teams and meant to live communally in some form. And when those of us who think we're heroes try to take something on by ourselves and then bottle everything up inside tends to turn us into sort of brittle people rather than sort of strong and flexible. And so sharing alone and, and hearing yourself reflected in another uh, does tend to give us strength and flexibility and increase our range, right? You might feel all sorts of emotions, but it increases your range and tolerance, right? Which is how I would, I would talk about resilience. So that's the first assumption I think in your question. And we totally buy into that. Uh, the second thing is how is that received in the investor communities? The answer is we tripled our business the week that COVID hit in groups work. And the reason is that investors were saying, I'm worried about our founders and I think they need to talk to somebody. <laughs> and so we started selling online groups of entrepreneurs, uh, eight to 10 founders in a group facilitated by a coach or a therapist. And basically what they're doing is just sharing their struggles with each other and hearing themselves reflected back. Feedback has been fantastic. People say, I, I thought I was the only one. It's great to know that everybody struggles. It's amazing to hear that it's actually normal, that it feels like things are breaking every day and it doesn't mean that I'm just bad at what I do. And of course, the investors are happy because as entrepreneurs are sharing resources, increasing each other's resilience, they're also giving each other advice and creating sort of this mastermind, right? Like strength and numbers sort of resilience that usually leaders of companies don't get. There might have been another part of your no, question. That, but... That's great. I uh, <laughs> appreciate those. 
it just seems like a, a, a narrative that's, that's so important and so empowering. Do you feel like, and, and for both of you, but do you feel like the model, the venture capital model has a tendency to, at least you know, in its classic sense, has a tendency to maybe perpetuate some of these challenges that we're talking about? You know, if you think about it's a game of ones and zeros and either we want home runs or we want to go bust in pursuit of home runs, you know, can that lead to some of the some of the toxicity or or challenges uh emotional and psychological that founders are dealing with and do you feel like there's there's sort of space to to chase these returns but also chase doing it in an emotionally and, and psychologically empowered way and i guess our thesis is that we're going to have better outcomes i mean simply put i think our general thesis is the success of, of your company, of any company, is a direct function of the health and wellness of the founder and the team. That's what we're trying to prove out. And we believe that we're going to have better aggregate portfolio returns because we're going to be able to get out ahead of all of the calamities you know, and issues that, that destroy companies in their growth stages. So I think we can control our destiny to some extent, but we can do it in a way that's that like ethically and morally makes a lot of sense to us because we're 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 making founders' lives better. And when their lives are better, their companies are gonna be better. It's just like a very simple connection. Like people are the ones running these companies. And so if they're happy and healthy and they can, you know, come to work every day and build cultures that are gonna attract and retain top level talent. And people are going to want to work for them because they've, you know, built an environment that's conducive, that's an inspiring environment, that's a productive environment, that is an environment that feels good because you're, you know, again, creating a really important change in the world. Then you're going to be able to track an amazing team and, and execute, you know, your vision and solve the problem at a, at a much bigger level and you'll be able to scale that easier. So, so yeah, I mean, that's, that's sort of the message we're trying to get out there. And it's not just like us doing this against and like everyone else is a competitor. It's like, you know, we want to like open this up to everyone and say, this, this should be the new normal. This should be the new environment by which VCs and founders interact with each other. We want to bring awareness to it. And I guess sort of be some thought, like just speak it from our megaphones that, you know, this is something that we feel like is is the proper way to engage in this industry and to engage with our founders. And this is going to create, it's a rising tide affects all shifts. This is going to create really, really positive change in the world. And it's going to be, we're going to do it in a, in a holistic and humanistic and, and ethical way. So, I mean, maybe the answer to the question is like, yes, like the culture of, in, of VC is perpetuating and causing difficulties for founders that are pretty severe. I mean, like Howie said, I think a lot of investors I met, especially when I just started this work, had the, we want founders who win at all costs. And and maybe that cost will be the life of a founder. You know, I think at some point we were talking last week, like as a person in the world, you have to do something that you can go to sleep at night and live with yourself. And if you're making your living on the backs of people who are hurting and suffering and maybe even dying, then that's, that's a cultural problem. And it's not a small problem. And it's, I mean, we're talking about people's lives, right? It's like, this is pretty serious. So we can get kind of flippant and like also like daydreaming about like, you know, how can we contribute and make things better? But I think it's also worth noting that like we have entrepreneurs killing themselves over their businesses. And, and because of the pressure to grow fast and over the pressure of trying to do right by their investors, right? If they'd gone out and grown a sustainable business with sort of incremental growth year over year, they might've had a very successful business and without all of that suffering. And I think as investors, we have to sit with that and know that we're a part of that story sometimes. Carrie, as a, as a clinical psychologist, do you think about this from the standpoint of developing data and developing research around the thesis? And what does that look like for you? Yeah, I have to correct you. I can't call myself a clinical psychologist. Um, I'm unlicensed. So technically a professional psychologist. So yeah, I mean, we, how we mentioned it, we would love to have a data set that shows and proves out some of our assumptions. 
We've been collecting for two years our own in-house data and started some conversations with uh, research groups that are doing this on a larger scale. And ultimately, would love to have VCs participating in large-scale research, showing that entrepreneurs who are engaging in personal work and taking care of themselves work more sustainably, stick with their companies longer, and ultimately show at least equal success to those who don't. Where you know we have to follow companies for you know six to eight years um, in order to show that kind of data, but that's something we have our eyes to. I think it's really important to be able to tell the story with data alongside our own feelings and passion. It's awesome. It's incredible work. I think it's uh, it seems like something that just feels so innately obvious, and that gotta figure out a way to to support people better and and be able to to shed light on these journeys that are that are typically very very arduous i guess one one sort of last question here for you guys what you know a huge part of i think folks being able to follow your guidance is being able to articulate what they're feeling what they're going through and it feels like you know self-awareness is is uh, a big part of that but that's not always an easy place to to kind of get to. Do you find that people are typically fairly self-aware when they come to you or do they have to, you know, is there is there work involved in that and how do you how do you get to a point where you can go articulate the kind of things like how I mentioned earlier in the conversation where, you know, you know how how you guys work together and what your what your sort of existential philosophies are and so it allows this connection to take place. What does that work typically look like? Yeah, so we see a lot of people who aren't there yet. And and almost sometimes by necessity as entrepreneurs and investors, we have to push away our self-awareness just to get through stuff, right? I mean, I, I meet entrepreneurs daily who are just operating in survival mode. And almost out of necessity, you can't do self-inquiry and self-understanding work if you're in survival mode literally your brain just focuses on right what's in front of you in order to keep you surviving. And so um, all the time we, we find ourselves meeting people where they are. And the, the message that we send, especially to investors who are just starting to come to this work is you absolutely have to do your own work in order to develop self-awareness. And it's an arduous process that requires asking tough questions of people around you. I was talking to a colleague yesterday about bringing back one of my favorite service offerings that we call Life360, which is we interview and send surveys to people in your life, and then you get all the feedback, just like a Leadership360, but it's for your life. And I think for people who have been cut off from their own personal experience for a long time, starting by getting feedback from those around you is a good place to start. And then you have to work with a coach or a therapist or a dedicated friend who can help you start doing the hard work and have enough bravery, I think, and camaraderie to go inside, ask yourself tough questions, look at the hard things about yourself in the mirror, um, and then ultimately start having those conversations with people who aren't close to you and and you don't have that comfort with. And um, it takes dedication. And it also takes having a companion, I think, to, to walk along that path with you. That's awesome. I love the Life360 idea. I'm going uh, to go explore that. Guys, I really appreciate the time that we've spent together today. Do you have any resources that you would suggest for either aspiring entrepreneurs or current entrepreneurs that maybe are going through a tough time or, or want to expand their journey in this area? Yeah, well, we absolutely recommend that everybody comes and tries one of our free drop-in groups called Leadership Labs. Um, it's a fantastic place to start that process I just mentioned, Michael, where you start getting feedback from others and starting to look at yourself in a mirror in a gentle, supportive environment. So highly recommend that. Is that just in the Bay Area? Uh, they're all virtual. So we have people from all over the world who join us and they happen three times a month. I really like the that coaching dojo. <laughs> yeah. We also offer a coaching training. So it's coaching skills for leaders. One of the one of the eight competencies that Google came out with for excellent leaders is actually being a good coach. So we realized pretty early on when we were training coaches that the skills we're training coaches on are actually incredibly valuable for leaders in both understanding themselves and in having these sort of transformative conversations with their team. So we also recommend to leaders that they get some coaching training. We, we really like our partners at the Coaching Dojo. Uh, they do a really nice job in a half-day format, but there's a lot of different ways to start 
having these conversations and honing your skills. Yeah, it's cool. It's like that dojo was all about asking, just asking better questions, which is something that I don't think leaders know how to do. Ask great questions, listen to understand versus listen to respond and like really be able to ex- extract and extrapolate you know, pertinent information from, from people on their team to be better informed to then, you know, once you have information, then you, you could apply, you, you could apply solutions in a, in a, in a more constructive way. Two more things. Read all of Brene Brown's books or watch her Netflix series as a leader, understanding how to step into your own vulnerability and host those conversations with others is absolutely invaluable. And sometimes I think leaders, as Howie said, like have this sort of pride and shame stuck together. And I think that exploring the concept of vulnerability totally breaks that open. The power of vulnerability is her TED Talk, I think, which is really good. She's great. She also, yeah, I could say a lot of things about her, but she's fantastic. And I think vulnerability is a really great place to start. And I also really like the 15 commitments of conscious leadership um, as a self-exploration journey and also an understanding that whatever you're creating inside is getting expressed to your business, whether you want it to or not. Um, And I think that's a good way to keep recommitting internal work for the service of the company. It's a great book. I I love the, uh, they're above the line, below the line. uh, So kind of dichotomy, it just really uh, clicked for me. I think it's, uh, it's great. It's so simple, right? It's like, you're either, you're either here or you're not. (laughs) It doesn't have to be complicated or difficult. Like you're either leading from your best self or you're not. That's great. And how can, how can people find you if they want to, if they want to reach out or, continue the conversation. My email is howie at alphabridgevc.com and our website's alphabridge.vc. We are going through a rebranding process, so that's all going to change, but we're really excited about the new new name and the new... And yeah, I can't say anything else, but we're excited. <laughs> so like, we're converging Alphabridge and Atlas under one name that we're... And we're going to have a big announcement in a couple months. But for now, yeah, those are ways that people can reach me. And people can learn more about Atlas at atlasq, the letter Q.com. All of our offerings, including the free leadership labs, are listed at atlasq.com slash offerings. We also are pretty good about answering all of our emails promptly. But hello at atlasq.com is a great email to get in touch with us. All of our coaches do free consultations. So if people are interested in learning what this whole coaching thing is about, come to a leadership lab or have a conversation one-on-one to get started. Awesome. Well, thank you so much. All that will uh, go in the show notes here. And um, guys, I just, I can't thank you enough for spending some time with me today. I really, really enjoyed uh, the conversation and and thanks for entertaining my uh, overly complex questions. <laughs> Anytime. <laughs> thanks, Michael. Thanks. All right. Thanks guys. Take care. Hi, it's Michael again. Thanks for listening to this installment of what didn't kill you. If you like what you heard, I encourage you to share with friends, subscribe, and review. You can continue the conversation and share your own stories of what didn't kill you at whatdidn'tkillyou.com, and you can follow along at what didn't kill you on Instagram. I wish you great fortune, growth, and clarity as you navigate your own path, and I hope today's conversation may have contributed in some small way. See you next time.